morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the fourth episode of UK Creativity Club's podcast series. Today's guest is Mr. Nick Simmons Smith. He's the Salvation Army Southern Territorial Music and Creative Arts Director, composer, conductor, and a bandmaster. He is originally from the United Kingdom, in which he graduated with a degree of music composition and performance from Colchester Institute. He came to the United States as a part of the Divisional Music Department of the Salvation Army. He is passionate about music and teaching music to the next generation. So we decided to host him as our guest to discuss about how the power of creativity led him through his musical journey. Today's guest host is Arnold Park. Please like and subscribe to our channel for more content like this. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today again. Um, we have a very special guest. Um, uh, how are you, Nick? I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Doing fine, thank you. Um, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and what you do primarily? Sure. Uh, my name is Nick Simmons-Smith. And you can tell from my accent that I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, actually, originally born close to London in England. And uh, I, I work for the Salvation Army, which you might know as the uh, thrift store or annoying bell at Christmas raising money. But it's actually a church and it's in 130 countries around the world and uh, very uh, strong in, in the United States. And uh, a big part of our ministry is music. So we have a lot of young people that come to the Salvation Army Church to learn music. And I'm now uh, in administration. So I oversee uh, the 15 Southern States uh, and the District of Columbia with all the music and arts programming that happens uh, across that region. So um, I'm in admin now and I miss being in the field where I could really teach and make an impact but that's kind of what I do and I'm, I'm married to Roberta who's a singer dancer actress um, and I have two boys Jonah and Jamie and a dog called Peppa and two guinea pigs well it's very nice to have you on this pa uh, podcast um, we usually feature a lot of people um, because naturally people who are interested in UK creativity club they're mostly seeking for their creative outputs and uh, most of the time, people usually, um, pe some people have reasons to um, express things creatively, but some people just do it for fun. So I would like to know what your sort of inspiration or influence was before you get st you got started or you got involved in Salvation Army Music Director. It's interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in the Salvation Army, so I'm, I'm what they call a fifth generation. So five generations of people going to the Salvation Army and music's such a big part. My dad was a fine musician. Uh, my mum was a good singer. My grandfather was a good musician. Um, my sister made me more creative. She was into modeling clay bugs and uh, being creative with our play when we were young. And uh, it made me kind of more artistic. I, I loved drama when I was a, a teenager and performing. I can't do it now. Uh, but I loved music and I, I think I wanted to be a journalist or a lawyer, but I figured out that for me, it was really easy to do music and not work very hard. Uh, it's just something that came pretty naturally. So I remember when I was seven, I wrote my first piece of music, which was just terrible. And then I kind of honed my craft as I went and I enjoy writing music, which is probably the most creative part of my job and my life. 
Um, and uh, I enjoy making music, which is such a lot of fun. Of course, uh, more difficult in these days with COVID, but uh, there's a lot of creativity about me. And I guess you would describe me as a type B or C or Z type of person. Um, I, I like to think creatively. I like to think idealistically sometimes. And it's kind of just something that's in my DNA. Arnold, do you have any questions for him? Yeah, so I mean, I know I know a little bit about you. So I I would like you to tell me like your day to day, but like I know your day to day is different in the summers. Uh, like maybe some events happen, like just an anniversary of certain events. So can you give me like a day to day of all these different scenarios that you have? Sure. Well, you know, I, I kind of say I'm in administration now, which and I say that with kind of a glum face because the exciting part about music and being creative is when you're making it you're doing it you're teaching it and uh, when you get removed from the classroom and you get you know you're looking at spreadsheets and budgets it's it's not nearly as exciting but um so i have a department here of uh, five or six people that i manage um and they are in different disciplines like a praise and worship rock band um music education creative arts education um, all different kind of aspects to, to music making. So I manage them. I have to sit on lots of meetings and councils to kind of discuss vision and thinking. Um, we also publish music uh, in my office. And this year, because of some budget cuts, I became the music editor. So we have 16 charts in a graded series that we publish every year. And as a composer, I contribute to that and write music. Um, uh, right now I'm writing music for a wedding that's coming up in two weeks and I kind of do that at home uh, once my kids have gone to bed. Um, so every day is very different. Uh, we're about to do a recording um, the next two days of uh, 16 pieces for a demonstration. Uh, so we're bringing in people uh, locally to do that recording. So I'm getting my scores together and maybe marking them up and planning out that recording session. Um, so day to day is very different. I, I guess in the summer I'm out teaching more and I get to be with real people rather than in this uh, building of uh, headquarters. Um, and I love to teach. Uh, and it's funny because if you'd asked me when I was your age, uh, Arnold, would, do you want to be a teacher? I would say absolutely not. Uh, teaching is something you've got to want to do. It's not something you can say, well, I didn't make it as a player, so I'm just going to teach. You can't do that. You've got to be passionate about it. And uh, eventually I found myself uh, getting into teaching and I loved it and I miss it. And I miss sharing that knowledge, imparting it. Uh, but one of the fun things about this past year has been able to do these kind of things, um, a little Zoom chat, or uh, uh, I did a nice series on theory, music theory, which I love uh, teaching that. And, and just to see the light bulb go off in someone's mind is pretty cool. So my days are different, but it's a mixture of admin, creative, composing, music, uh, that type of thing. Um, that actually brings me up the, <laughs> the next question and I, I guess a comment. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite composers is uh, Stephen Sondheim and he's, he's, he's a big composer in musical field, of course. Um, but he likes to say that, you know, a, a job of a composer is not only to share his music, but teach people how to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes that's very true with, you know, a lot of musicians when they perform they're teaching, essentially teaching people how to almost behave and almost um, listen to what they want, what they need them to listen to. And they have almost that control. And 
only until you perform in front of a live audience. Um, Stephen Sondheim likes to say that only until then you you finally finish your collaboration with your last collaborator. Um, so I think I think um, uh, I don't know what it's about, but it's always about arts and teaching arts to the next generation that you know a lot of people are appealed by it um and i think that actually um leads me to the next question i think um which is you know about your composition so when you compose uh, is there first of all is there your um what is your primary instrument or do you have an instrument oh, that boy. you can call like a primary <laughs> instrument it's a good question i i i was raised as trombone player but I took piano lessons from a very early age and I got to the point with piano where I could play Mozart and Beethoven but it was like it wasn't enjoyable when I started playing by ear I really enjoyed it got into jazz a little bit and uh, enjoyed playing for choirs and things gospel music um, and I tried to listen to a wide range of music you know Latin jazz one day or classical music which I love um, and so I guess I'm a hybrid half reader half by ear which is actually a pretty good place to be because even if I'm reading music I'm translating in my brain where my fingers should naturally go and and that leads itself to the gift of arranging and composing so uh, piano would be my key skill I think uh, but I like to play the trombone or the tuba I like to play the double bass uh, when I can um, those those are the kind of instruments that I like to play but so the do piano you one, yeah yeah, I'm sorry. Do, do you like to compose any pieces on like certain instruments? Because from my experience, I really um, I primarily write for piano, and and um, I I'm not I'm not like a proficient composer, but I I sort of dabble. Um, and well, most of the time, things sort of come. I, you know, it's kind of weird because for me, sometimes things just pop in my head, and sometimes. I have to sit on the piano to be inspired. And sometimes I'm listening to different pieces and you know, that's how I come to realize that, oh, this is a new idea. And so what, what's your, I don't know if you can define it as a process because you know, art, I think uh, creating art is sort of, you know, there's, there's no craft to it. There's no end result until you actually get to it. But what would be sort of your process in terms of composing and arranging? Yeah. Well, I class myself more of as an arranger than a composer. Um, and I guess my favorite part of writing is scoring. So I write for brass band a lot, um, occasionally for women band. Right now, I happen to be writing for violin, cello and piano. Um, so I, the process for me is an idea will come into my head. And if I don't have an idea, I will go for a walk. Uh, I will get away from the piano and strangely for me water is inspiring so I have a lake at the bottom of my road that I would go to and then I suddenly get flooded with ideas and then I would write all these ideas down and then I would try to think about the uh, context of the whole piece the beginning the middle the end where the journey I want to go on and then it's really uh, two things editing and math so a lot of music is math so the theory of it what works how you place a chord how you score that often the approach of less is more i find with a lot of young composers they're putting their kitchen sink in a piece of music and they really don't need to do that just simplify it's okay for people to rest actually it's a good thing for people to rest in terms of the texture of the music um and then edit 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 so i might have 30 ideas for a piece 
but by the end, maybe only four make it and the rest are screwed up in a piece of paper on the floor. Um, because if I put every idea I had into it, it wouldn't make sense. So self-editing and then actually having someone else look at a piece and edit it is, is painful because it's when you produce a piece of music, it's like a baby, you know, you love it. Uh, and then sometimes you think this is terrible. And the next day you think this is the best thing that's ever been written. Uh, actually, it's probably somewhere in between that. Uh, but having someone red pen something, you know, mark it up and say, why are you doing this? Or uh, in musical terms, they'll say, well, there's a parallel fifths here or, or parallel octaves. It doesn't work. Often, you, of course, you're using your ear, but often I will come back to the piano and I will go where my fingers want to go. And then I will score it from there. So I am piano driven, but for artistic ideas, I try to get away from the piano. Otherwise, it brings me to a place where I've been several times. And, and while there's nothing new under the sun, you really don't want to be uh, stealing an idea, often subconsciously from somebody else. You know, this is an amazing tune. Oh, it happens that John Williams has already written this, you know. Uh, <laughs> so you have to be careful about that. But that's kind of my process. I don't know if that helps. So, um, well, you, your job also it involves a lot of teaching and, and sort of sort of directing the band. Um, is there, um, what would be your best and worst part of your job? <laughs> well, the, the, I mean, in my job, 10% of it is probably music. I mean, I'm a music director, but most of my job is dealing with people, uh, communicating, setting up, administration, all that stuff. The bit I love is the music bit, the 10%. So as a director, if I can get in front of a group, which I'll be doing the next two days, that's great because that's, that's what comes naturally to me. I'm not naturally an administrator, uh, but the music is easy and it, it comes naturally to me. I do like to uh, direct and conduct um, and I do like to write. So those are, when I get a chance to do both of those things, it's a real privilege. Conducting is an interesting thing because um, you are trying to draw out of the player the composer's intent, uh, which can be interpreted a little bit by the conductor and actually by the players. So my role is to kind of get out of the way as a conductor. And uh, you're not there to beat time. Because if you have a half decent group, they can count to four. They don't need you to be conducting. Uh, but it does need to be clear and you need to draw out of the ensemble um, the composer's intent. And you need to make it interesting. Let's take a, a brass ensemble, for instance. And, and my friend uh, Arnold uh, plays a brass instrument. The sound of brass is wonderful. You can just picture Christmas and some nice carols, but it can sometimes sound very vanilla and the same. So you have to work on dynamic contrasts or uh, the rubato in a piece of expressive music that needs to be pulled out. Uh, I'm in control of that, uh, but it's also a partnership, the player, the conductor, and of course the composer. Um, so staying true to that. But the teaching and the conducting is the bit that I really love about my job. The administration bit, not so much, although I've learned to appreciate it and I've certainly learned to do it better. I got a question for yeah, go that's related to that. So I know that you teach the local band, which is our core Lawrenceville, but then you also do the territorial. And I, I've always been curious. I always see like sometimes you would not be there because you have to go territorial. And I'm like, how do you manage that? And sometimes territorial is not even in Georgia. You have to like fly to New York or Texas. I'm like, I don't, how, how do yeah. you like, well, how do you do all this? That's, 
a good question, uh, Arnold. And what he's talking about is we have a local church band that plays every week on a Sunday and, and they would be volunteer um, average players, you know, mixed ability. Uh, and then a, a, an all-star band that comes together three times a year. Now, when we come together, we arrive on a Wednesday night. We rehearse all day Thursday, all day Friday. Imagine your chops for a brass player practicing. And then we do concerts on maybe Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, fly home. Different process entirely. One, you've got really good players in the all-star group. So you're pushing them harder. You're playing harder music and you are really looking for perfection. In the local group, I'm trying to make sure everyone's having a good time, that they actually want to come out and do this, um, that I'm not too hard on them. The last thing they want after a hard day's work is the, the conductor shouting at them, uh, you know, you didn't play that A flat. Um, they're volunteers. So it's, it's sort of dealing with uh, mediocrity in a way, in, a, in a, an encouraging way, you know, and, and also you're like a surgeon so you're trying to fix things as a conductor uh, stop here these four bars let's fix that let's go on move on um in the local band i can't fix everything because we don't have enough time to do that and i would rather move on in the rehearsal so that everyone's having a good time than fix every problem that went wrong uh, i have to allow for personal practice to fix some of those things and also just accepting who they are you know i've got like my most faithful uh, player is my worst player you know he's terrible but he, he will not miss a rehearsal and it's like oh my goodness but I'm not gonna rip him up if he can't play a C sharp you know we're gonna joke about it I might remind him I also might set some expectations to say look we can do better than that um, so it's not just a whatever goes because actually the groups that Arnold's talking about are for church so our motivation is not to make me look good it's to produce something great for god and also to bless the congregation that are there so actually we are striving for something very good but i just deal with it differently but i, I do like both groups and i don't favor one over the other surprisingly you know you think oh well you want to be with the all-star group all the time and they're great people uh, but i actually like the local group because i have a 13 year old korean next to a 82 year old old boy from the south next to a you know, Hispanic girl next to a Brit, next to a Canadian. It's beautiful. It's multi-generational and intercultural. And there we all are playing our horns. And it also teaches young people discipline, uh, commitment to something. And the fellowship of coming together as a group is pretty unique. So <clears throat> that actually uh, leads us to right, right next to the question. Um, you, you talked about the multi cultural and uh, multi-generational and oftentimes when people talk about music it's it's universal music is a one if if there's a universal language it's music and um uh one of my favorite musicians of all time bernstein actually managed to say that not a lot of composers have gone through that not a lot of composers have accomplished that or, or accomplished proving the fact that music is a universal language. And he says, except for one, and that's Beethoven. Um, he says that Beethoven Ninth, uh, the symphony, uh, number, uh, symphony number nine, the, the famous choral symphony, um, has managed to be performed and sung across the world, and it still manages to, to um, 
induce that feeling in people that that almost excitement that thrill that comes from the bottom of their heart and so so what do you what do you think makes you music somewhat universal to people why do you think music is something that people just obsess over and they they just talk about it all the time well there's a number of reasons i mean it's just how our brain is wired and of course around the world you would have a different appreciation for a different style if you were in uh, japan or in africa or south america or you know western culture it's very different um but I think it inspires, it takes us to a place that nothing else can take us to. I mean, the other universal language is love. Uh, and it's similar because it takes you to a place of emotion that you can't sometimes verbalize, you know, and, and maybe you're, you're listening to Ode to Joy, the choir's in, and it just, in, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you are somehow lifted up and transported to another place. Um, music can do that. And for me, music is also uh, sparks memories. And it's a bit like smell. You know how if you smell something, it takes you to a place in your life, maybe 30 years ago. Music does that. There's some songs that I love so much, I can't listen to. Um, and it might be an association with, a, I don't know, an, an old girlfriend or uh, a time in my life I was very happy. And I can't listen to that song because I love it so much. I mean, how complicated is that? I think I need counseling. But uh, that's what music can do. The power of music uh, is so strong. And of course, in my world of Christian music, uh, that power is harnessed on a totally different level. You know, people are then questioning their whole lives because they're listening to something, a hymn or a, an arrangement that moves them deeply. And I do believe it's a spiritual thing, even if you're a non-believer. Um, and, and of course, there were certain composers that were dreadful people like Wagner, who was anti-Semitic. But his music is still amazing and God can still use that. Um, and Beethoven was just a master of scoring and he changed classical music and really set it up. And I'm a big fan uh, of Beethoven particularly, but those soaring instruments when they come together in the right mix, and I liken it to cooking, another passion of mine. If you get the dish exactly right with the right balance of flavors and salty, spicy, tart, crunchy, smooth, uh, the experience just transcends you to another level. And I think the same thing happens with music. If you don't get that mix and balance right, it can be an ugly experience. So great music can take you to another place. Average music, can you, you can forget about it, you know, after you've heard it one time. But there's something in us. Is it the soul? Is it the heart? Is it just who we are? I think God gave us this gift, honestly, and it just inspires and makes, it brings a tear to the eye gives us great joy sometimes and what a fabulous experience uh, it's kind of interesting how you made an analogy of music and and, and the balance of music to mm. cooking mm. because Sondheim did that too Sondheim hey. was yeah he was he was being interviewed and um the interviewer was asking you know what, what would the process look like and he actually um, compare the, the music process or compo uh, composition process to, to cooking. And he would, he would be interested in the craft behind the cooking and what actually makes certain foods go together and certain foods not. Um, so I think, I think that, that fits well, up very cool and interesting. And there are 
certain things that automatically go well, uh, like duck and orange sauce goes mm -hmm. incredibly well. Uh, liver and onions, if you can believe it, goes really well. Uh, and there are certain things in music that when you have certain chords or chord structure, you just know that that's going to work. You know, certain inversions, certain ways you can write for a cello or a French horn, you just know it will work. Same thing in food. I think, yeah, I think I just thought it was very, very cool because, yeah. you know, um, I I love cooking too. And, you know, it's kind of amazing that, you know, so many people, uh, when I when I tell them, you know, music is this powerful being, you know, it's one of the art forms that's um, that has that superior, I, I don't want to say superiority, but it, it requires um, a lot of people just enjoy them. And it doesn't require that much of, um, what do you call, almost like a sense of education. Yeah. And so many people, when I tell them, they're like, oh, I'm tone deaf. And so many people will just flat out say, I can't listen to music because I don't hear it. But they don't say things like that uh, about food, about different different um, arts for, art forms that requires their um, senses. Um, so yeah, what do you... What other... do you yeah, why do you think that's that's the case? Like, you know, why do people say, although they can clearly hear it, they oftentimes just sort of get afraid and they get overwhelmed and they say, oh, I'm toned in. I'm, I, I can't do that. <laughs> or, um, I, I can't sing this part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some people that really struggle to sing. I will give you that. But I like everyone to have a go. Uh, I don't know. There are certain pieces of music. Not everybody likes Beethoven 9. Um, but there are certain pieces of music that you can say that's definitely well-crafted, whether you like it or not. I think the same thing is true with food. Uh, I have conversations with my mother sometimes where we're listening to a piece of music and I'll say, yeah, but he did this and he did that and that's wrong and he should never have done that. And she'll say, well, I just liked it. You know, and I guess I'm analyzing it in far greater detail. The same thing could be true if you were a food critic. Um, I might just say, I like that that lamb, you know, chop, but the food critic might say it was slightly overcooked and that it didn't match with whatever. And I guess it depends on your level of interest in that field, how far you want to go. So some people just are not interested in classical music, for instance, but they probably never really tried it. It's a bit like my son trying to get him to eat his vegetables. You know, if only he would try to eat uh, this broccoli, then I think he would enjoy it eventually. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to try. And I think that is, it's probably true with some music and and again i would come back to the point of listening to a, a broad eclectic taste of music um, and, and and same thing with food you know i might not like indian food but i'm going to give it a go actually i happen to love indian food um but just trying other things i think is the way to do it but i think probably for you louis you are so in particularly to musical theater by the sound of it uh, and you, a musical theatre is a, certainly a genre that takes you. And, and you know, I mean, I was watching a, a film, Over the Moon, was it a Disney film? And the score and the singing was just, and it's a little cartoon on Disney. And it's like getting me emotional, you know? And I think when we are at that level, we are probably not only uh, getting brought up emotionally, uh, but we also, from an analytical point of view, thinking that's amazing craft. That probably there are a lot of people that don't get to that second part, but do get the sense of the first part of, of getting brought up in, in the emotion of it all. But 
whether something is good or bad is pretty subjective. But um, you know, if I would agree, it's absolute rubbish. Um, whereas when you you strike gold like Beethoven did on the ninth, the melody, the line of it, the what the shape of the symphony, <clears throat> the length, and, and sometimes less is more. Um, approach uh, really makes that sing for me. So I don't know if I answered that, but those are some of my thoughts. Um, so uh, it's just, uh, I think it's just interesting perspective to hear from a band director and a composer. So um, now I sort of want to dabble into the, the composition part again um, and ask you, it, if you could describe them, who would be your major influences behind your com uh, compositions? Um, and I, you know, this doesn't have to be single composer, it can be multiple, you know, um, but who are your major influences when you're writing a piece of music? Great question. Um, I would say, because I'm an arranger, um, in the Salvation Army, we have had brass music published since 1886, and oodles of it tons of it um so a lot of salvation army composers have influenced me uh, when i moved to america uh, more than 20 years ago there's a certain american sound now i'm going to explain this to you if if you know the music of elgar uh, which is british the it's very close okay the, the the notes are close together and it's very compact if you come to America and you listen to Copeland, for instance, it's very spacious and he uses fourths and fifths rather than seconds and thirds a lot. And it actually reflects the country I'm from. So Britain is really tight and crushed. It's a little island. There's too many people. America is broad, so much space, big sky, you know. Um, so it kind of reflects where you come from. So I think that's influenced me. But when I came to America, people like uh, James Curnow, Stephen Buller, William Himes, are all Salvation Army composers, as well as being uh, prolific outside commercial writers. They influenced me to keep things simple, um, to write not cookie cutter music, but you know what will be successful, intuitive music. I don't tend to write um, pieces of music that people will go, hmm, what's he saying there? Uh, my music is pretty dead straight ahead. This is what it's going to be, you know? Um, I would say from a classical point of view, I love Grieg and the harmonies of Scandinavian music. I love nationalist music. So uh, Rachmaninoff, um, Stravinsky, Shostakovich. I'm not saying I write like those people, but that's what I really <laughs> enjoy listening to. I found the French composers of Foray and uh, Debussy, um, Ravel, uh, I love those harmonies and the darkness of the, of the mellow sound uh, probably has um, shaped me. But I think more than anything, going to church and singing hymns every week has shaped me because if you can, the melody is the hardest thing to write if it's going to be attractive and memorable. We, well, I could uh, reharmonize something five ways in a heartbeat. Um, you know, I could, but, but writing a, a memorable melody is really hard. Probably only, the only thing that's harder than that is writing really good words that fit a melody. Uh, chords and harmonization and arranging, that's easy. That's just math and a little bit of artistic nuance. Um, but creating a melody, and I think being open to hymns my whole life 
um, has really helped me with melody, um, making sure that it's, you know, in the right range and has a line and goes somewhere. And music, you know, has to travel this way as well as this way. And if you, the trouble is with some composers these days, if I'm honest, because we now write on computers and we can have a whole symphony, like from the word go, uh, we have not maybe gone back to writing on four lines and soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and then exploding that out to symphonic writing. Uh, young composers just tend to start with, you know, 32 uh, staves and start plotting things on. They also, the computer can play anything, you know. No. You know, people cannot do that. So uh, we have to be a little bit careful about that. So I think the, the whole concept of writing uh, something simple, memorable, and I kind of know the keys that will make it popular for both the player and the listener. And because I deal with hymns and melodies, the actual good bit of the work has already been done for me. I'm just adding my nuance. So that brings me to the final question. Um, we're about to finish our podcast series. First of all, I would like to thank you again for joining us today. Um, the last question is sort of what we, uh, what we asked last week um, when we featured a piano teacher who has been teaching piano for 46 years. Wow. Uh, so we asked her, um, so... I don't. Um, I don't know if you knew about this, but there's a there's a event that's called Desert Island Discs. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you had the experience to be participated in it, but um, uh, so if you were to take eight records or eight pieces of music, eight collections of work, <laughs> what would you take to Desert Island Discs? Oh, I could do another hour just on this question. I love this. Okay. Um, First of all, oh my goodness, um, I would probably take Shostakovich 5, uh, Beethoven 6, Grieg's Piano Concerto, um, uh, I'd, I'd probably, oh this is tricky because I'm going to leave something out, um, maybe Elgar's Nimrod, um, I, I'm deal very much in classical music so everything before like the Mozart and Baroque music I can live without that but I might take uh, uh, Bach's Passion um, St Matthew's Passion um, oh my goodness um, I'm probably going to miss out a bunch of things I'd like to take I'd like to take some Ravel um, some Four oh I'd take Four A's Requiem and I'd also take Brahms's Requiem. Those are my two favorite pieces um, all time. So I definitely have those. Um, some Stravinsky, probably The Rite of Spring. It's fantastic to listen to, never gets old. Um, I need to take something British. It probably, well, I've got Elgar in there. Um, maybe some Benjamin Britten. Um, yeah, I've, I've given you a lot of options there, but that's kind of my palette, my taste. Huh. Um, I do like musical theatre too. My wife loves it. Um, I'm a kind of a traditional lay mis kind of guy, phantom. Uh, I, wicked's okay. Um, I, but I like it when it has an orchestra, you know, that type of thing. Um, I'd also like to take some Latin jazz. I'd probably take uh, some Count Basie, uh, something like that. Um, and some 80s pop. I'd take some of that. Like, I really like the musicians that have lasted, that are legitimate musicians like Sting, 
um, or I mean even Elton John or Billy Joel is quality proper writing in my opinion Eric Clapton master craftsman in the guitar I'd probably take some of that so I've given you a lot there but um, that's kind of my my tastes um, you know people ask me well who's your favorite composer but that's impossible to pin down because you have different tastes and also different moods you know but I think if I was pushed for one piece of music it would probably be Foray's Requiem that's go listen to it today podcast <laughs> It's seven movements. I mean, it's all about death, but but it's absolutely it? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but composers oh, get obsessed. Listen to it, Louis. Do it, do it, and you need to be. Don't listen to it in the car. Get home, lay on the couch, and listen to Foray's Requiem, and uh, that will transport you somewhere. I guarantee it. That is noted. Um, so I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, for Something that I want to end off uh, with, um, I'm, you know, just trying to wrap it up. Uh, in the words of, again, Stephen Sondheim, anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. Um, I think that's a great line for composers, arrangers, you know, any kinds of people who are dealing with um, art creation today. So uh, is there anything that you would like to say for, uh, for final thought to any young composers or young people who are trying to delve into art creation? Yeah, just uh, I'd say, first of all, this podcast is fantastic and well done uh, for doing it and, and talking about these things. We don't talk about them often enough. I would say for the young composer, keep at it. Uh, learn your theory. Learn your circular fifths. Get all the basics done because composition is kind of naturally come from a love of music theory. Uh, it's well worth it. And, and also the first piece you write probably won't get published and played by the New York Phil. Uh, your 20th piece maybe, but not your first piece. There's a, a lot, when I look back on all the things I've written and it's over 300 pieces because I have them catalogued, not all published, but 300 arrangements. And um, uh, when I look back at some of the early ones and I'm thinking, what was I thinking? Uh, there's, there's a piece I arranged um, uh, Largo from Xerxes by Handel. And there are no rests, brass players in a very slow piece of music. What was I, what was I thinking, you know? Um, or a melody that you think that's really cheesy. Uh, so I would say to the young composers, stick at it because every time you write another piece, uh, you're going to learn something. And, um, and it's kind of, you know, having been writing for 30 years now, you just get a little bit better each time and uh, just stick at it and, and, and try to get people to play it because the computer doesn't do it justice. Get real people to play it and get some feedback and don't be hurt and pained when someone says, I didn't really like that G minor chord, you know, because you're going to feel like this is my baby. You can't criticize it, but you need to be open uh, to allow a bit of criticism. But well done you for doing this and all those creative people out there, keep at it. Gosh, the world needs creative people, particularly right now, whether that's in drama or clay modeling or drawing or computer stuff. Um, we need more creators in the world and I think the world will be a better place. Thanks, Louis. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we'll come back with another podcast next week and we'll, until then, have a great week. Awesome.